Hej. <laughs> I knew that one would get you. Yeah, caught me off guard. Hey, friends. Welcome to... Happy Tears! I I'm... feel really good about that one. <laughs> I'm Brandon. I'm Nick. And we feel good about that one. We do. Today on the podcast, we discuss Maria Semple's New York Times best-selling novel, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? The epistolary novel that follows a former architect who is now a housewife in Seattle, whose house, and may I say her life, are falling apart, as well as the Richard Linklater film adaptation that is in theaters now. This is Happy Tears. Hello, my friend. What's up? How are you? Man, I'm I'm doing good. Doing well. Anything new? Yeah, I got some music on, on deck that I've been listening to. Tell me about it. So Pine Grove, uh, a band from New Jersey, just released a new song. I think it's good. Kind of just makes me just more excited for their next project, which seems imminent. They've been kind of teasing some stuff on the socials. Saw them at a place called Three Links here in town, and it was fantastic show so one thing i love about the band is evans the lead singer evan his delivery on a lot of these songs is just really unique and i love it and that holds true on this song as well uh the album artwork's pretty cool for this and i've liked their you know their last projects a lot so just really looking forward to this and if i was in chicago where i once was they're playing two shows there one show at a well the one that's not sold out is at Lincoln Hall, and I love that venue. So I am a sad boy oh. because I cannot go to that. How about you, dude? It's been about a week and a half since we recorded, and I have consumed a lot yeah. since. So I just this morning finished watching a little Japanese anime cartoon mm-hmm. called Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. Yes. And it was so good. It's a hell of a ride. It's a hell of a ride, and I don't even know where to start. Yeah. Of a, it's like this epic tale of two brothers mm-hmm. who uh, perform a specific kind of science and end up like losing limbs mm-hmm. and body parts, and they're on a quest to get their bodies back through. It's like a, it's like a mix. They call it alchemy, and it's this kind of mix between science and magic. Magic, right? Yeah. Man, it was great. Had some happy tears just this morning, um, wow. right at the end, and uh, really beautifully executed, well drawn. The art is awesome, and the story really is, and and the voice acting. So, for the one anime fan that listens, this is for you. This is for you. It's also been out for a long time, so <laughs> you've probably already seen it. Probably, yeah. So, another thing that I thought was really great was there's a um, a band called Tenariwen. Uh, they are from Mali. How do you spell that? It's T-I-N-A-R-I-W-E-N. Wow. And uh, I think it means deserts. And they have a new album coming out and they released a, a single along with the video. And I think the single's great If you and the production's really great. And if you heard it for the first time, I think it would be something that may be new to you. It's, they're like a, a rock band that fuses a lot of their like traditional uh, sounding stuff uh, from Molly with a rock element to it. And this video is just really immersive. It's them. It's a fascinating view of them like traveling through the desert on tour. And then there's some shots of them uh, recording and stuff as well. Mesmerizing shots and just really 
cool landscape. And so I like the song all right. I think it's going to be good. If it's your first time hearing them, I think it'll be something definitely different. Crazy stories too. If you have the time and like this band, their story is really, really nuts. The song title is called Kel Tanawin. is how maybe I would say it. It's K-E-L space T-I-N-A-W-E-N. A lot of it is really calming. There's kind of the the singer will sing a line and there's almost like this response from the, the rest of the group. And I love it. I got some new music. I have been obsessed with Still Woozy lately. Have you heard of this guy? I don't think so. It's just kind of chill, poppy, like white boy R&B, but it's really <laughs> good. It's very dancey. I think you'll really like it. I actually heard it for the first time at our friend Jake's birthday. It was on one of the playlists. So I've been obsessed with the EP. It's called Lately. came out this year. Highlight track is called Habit. Awesome. I also ran into a, an album that I, I didn't listen right when it came out, but it within the last few weeks, it has dropped. And it's a band called The Murder Capital. And they're from Ireland. The name of the album is When I Have Fear. And it's their debut album. They're like a post-punk band from Dublin. And it just has like like these driving guitars and drums. And this whole, I guess, post-punk scene right now is is alive and well. And there's a couple bands that are similar in flavor, but don't, you know, don't sound the exact same, like uh, Idols being one of them. And uh, Fontaine's DC, who I saw with Idols being the other, they're from uh, Dublin as well. One thing I love about this album is like the peaks and valleys of it. It has, uh, it'll be throbbing, kind of beat you over the head for kind of an extended period of time. And then it goes into something that's really quiet. And I just think that the record sequenced really well. Cool. So I think they've got a good, bright future ahead of them. (laughs) I got a couple instances of happy tears this week that I wanted to tell you about. I want to hear them. First and foremost, I watched my favorite movie, That'll do it to you. Yeah. I kind of wanted to put it to the test. I hadn't seen it in a while. I was like, is this my favorite is this movie? It? Yeah. Is it? Is it for real? Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, Short Term 12 is my favorite movie. <laughs> Good. And I cry through the whole thing. <laughs> oh, man. I can see that. Nonstop. I, yeah, I love that movie too. It's If you haven't seen it, I'm just going to give the bullet points. Before any of these people were really famous, you get Brie Larson- Rami Malek, Lakeith Stanfield from Atlanta, and a bunch of other stuff. John Gallagher Jr. from The Newsroom. Great cast. Beautifully acted. It's the story of a short-term housing facility that takes care of kids that either their parents can't take care of them or don't want to. Most of them have mental health issues. It's a very heavy movie. I don't even know if it's a lot of fun, (laughs) you know, but it is... So beautiful. It speaks to the human spirit and really ends kind of in a in a magical, hopeful way. And you just watch Brie Larson inhabit a character that is trying to keep all these other people's lives happy while pushing away her own issues and, and drama. And I just, it, it's a masterclass of acting. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful story, not without its light points and levity and jokes and it is my favorite movie and i cried for a long time when i watched it the other day 
<laughs> I love that. I had two more, not from any specific piece of art. They were just two things I saw on Instagram made me cry the other day. <laughs> Good. One of which was on Mark Hamill, a.k.a. Luke Skywalker, mm-hmm. a.k.a. the Joker from Batman the Animated Series, uh, posted a video of a little girl who was at Disneyland, I think the new the new Star Wars park in California. Yeah. She was dressed as Rey. They were doing this thing where employees of the park that were dressed up as like stormtroopers and even a Kylo Ren yeah. were walking down the, this like kind of alleyway or street, this big open area. Right. And she stood there and, and held her hand out. And so they would walk up to her and the second they get to her, they had to turn and veer away. And it, it happened, you know, a couple times with like a Captain Phasma and then some stormtroopers and then Kylo Ren. And then the woman playing Ray in the park walks up and she just bends down and the little girl dressed as her hugged her. And it was just really beautiful. And I'm kind of getting choked up right now. <laughs> Me too, dude. You're telling it. Um, and doing a great job just, telling just seeing you see yourself a little bit because most people grew up with Star Wars and it was just so innocent and pure and, and I cried and I would let me categorize I yeah. think it was about a glazing to maybe a single tear so I didn't weep it was a nice glaze yeah that was something that was suggested by our friend Jake that we should uh, maybe give levels for our happy tears in terms mm-hmm. of how intense they are, which I thought was a good idea. So so this was somewhat of a glazing to, to maybe a single tear or a couple tears at most, but it was very touching to me. Good. Got another one from Instagram. Did you see any of the Kanye West in Dayton, Ohio yeah. videos? Oh, yeah, yeah. Watching him perform Jesus Walks. Yeah, I did see that was too. very emotional for me. And I... A pretty steadfast atheist <laughs> still got pretty moved by the idea of coming together in a community where tragedy is struck. And no matter what you think about Kanye, right. just bringing music and bringing hopeful spirit yeah. to a community that's been devastated was right. was pretty powerful to me. Absolutely. I'm there with you on the, on like, you could think whatever you kind of want to about Kanye and just watching those videos was like, I always find it interesting listening to a song and there's a new context to the song or whatever or it fits that moment perfectly when it meant something you know 10 years ago or whatever yeah so i find those moments cool you want to get to the next thing okay new segment time here on happy tears we thought it would be fun since this is a pop culture podcast to introduce some news stories that are relevant to the things we're talking about, but we don't want it to be a very long, drawn-out conversation. We just want to touch on some things that we think are relevant. Maybe we'll touch back on them later as stories develop, but we're going to call this, I'm going to call this, the very brief news brief. You ready? Oh, yeah. All right, first story. It seems like we just can't get away from one Mr. Richard Linklater, Brandon. (laughs) They've announced his next project. Have you heard about this? I have heard about this. Okay, so it's called Merrily We Roll Along. It is actually a Broadway musical that debuted in 1981 that they are going to spend the next 20 years filming. Yep. Much like Boyhood, which was a 12-year endeavor, this one's going to take 20, and it covers, I guess, that much time? I'll read a little bit from the New York Times. The musical moves in reverse, chronicling over two decades the fortunes of three best friends in show business. I guess they're going to show these characters over 20 years, and just a couple fun facts, that means this movie is going to come out sometime around 2040? Yeah, that's... 
Ridiculous. And Richard Linklater will be 79 when that happens. Nice. Really wild. So, Nick, do you know the Venice Film Festival? I know that there is a film festival in Venice. (laughs) It typically is one of the first major debuts for these films that are going into award season. And it's the first time people can get their eyes on them. And it tends to be a pretty relaxed festival. Yeah. So there's a, a bunch of press of actors hanging out with each other. But this year, there's some pretty large films and the most highly anticipated one is the Todd Phillips directed Joker film. I hear it got quite the reception. Oh yes it did. Got an eight minute standing ovation which is pretty wild and it's coming in with some pretty solid reviews so I think we're both looking forward to that one. Absolutely. Uh, Some other notable films here we have Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story and it's a pretty highly anticipated one as well starring Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver. Ad Astra, the new space adventure film uh, directed by James Gray, starring Brad Pitt, is another highly talked about film. The King, starring Timothy Chalamet, is another big one that uh, Timothy's been the the talk of the town, apparently, and his uh, attractiveness is on spotlight. He's very handsome. Yes, he is. So, Brandon, do you ever find that when you buy tickets to concerts, especially larger concerts, that the service fees are exorbitant? All the time. Well, two senators, Amy Klobuchar and Richard Blumenthal, would tend to agree with you. They have asked the Justice Department to investigate Live Nation, who owns Ticketmaster, essentially to see if there's any regulatory measures that need to be taken in the ticketing industry because of general price gouging and service fees, uh, etc. I hate service fees. They are insane. I don't know how they get away with it. Well, I guess I do because they're not regulated. So maybe, so maybe government will do something good. I hope so. (laughs) Nick, have you ever watched the show Good Eats on the Food Network? I have not. Tell me about it. Well, neither have I. (laughs) But I'm hearing great things and a lot of people are excited that it's back after 14 seasons and a seven year hiatus. Alton Brown is the host on the show and it is described as kind of a like Bill Nye with food. There's some sketches in there, some really quirky elements. Episode one is now on YouTube and it covers chicken parmesan. I love me some chicken <laughs> parm or chicky chicky parm parm, as Tom Haverford from Parks and Rec might say. <laughs> That's it for the very brief news brief. <laughs> I hope that I catches think, yeah. on and is good. And I also hope it was brief. Bernadette Fox was simply the most exciting thing in the world of architecture 20 years ago. Well, no one told me about her. I think what happened to my mom is that she got so focused on her family that she forgot about herself. Honey, are you getting enough sleep? Sleep? What's up? So this is the, the Goodreads description for Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Bernadette Fox has vanished. When her daughter B claims a family trip to Antarctica as a reward for perfect grades, Bernadette, a fiercely intelligent shut-in, throws herself into preparations for the trip. But worn down by years of trying to live the Seattle life she never wanted, Miss Fox is on the brink of a meltdown. And after a school fundraiser goes disastrously awry at her hands, she disappears, leaving her family to pick up the pieces. Which is exactly what B does weaving together an elaborate web of emails, invoices, and school memos that reveal a secret past Bernadette has been hiding for decades. So, we read this book called Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Yes, and mainly because I've been familiar with this book now for several years, but now that Linklater has, Richard Linklater, that is, <laughs> what a guy. Have some goddamn respect. <laughs> he directed this film adaptation, so... We had to get on it. We did. 
And what did you think? I thought the book, so so we're talking about just the book right now, right? Yeah, and then just we'll, the book. We'll, we'll, we'll move on to the film. I thought the book was fun. Pretty light, easy read, right? Mm-hmm. Colorful cast of characters. I think I'm a little bit outside of the target audience. Okay. A lot of the comedy is situational and has to do with waspy moms mm-hmm. feuding over their kindergarten classes and stuff. Right. Which, while I saw the humor in it, I wasn't doubled over laughing. Like, that was the sense I got reading the hundred positive reviews that are pasted in the front of this book, <laughs> right? People just seemed over the moon that this was the most hilarious thing they've ever read. I didn't quite have that exact experience. I thought it was funny and witty. But yeah, I, I did have a good time reading it. I'm glad we read it. Yeah. How'd you feel? Yeah, I'm I'm there with you. And we'll talk about it a little bit, but I, I wonder if, you know, the structure of this has has to do with that a little bit too. Yeah, so before we get into specifics of things we liked, just to paint a broader picture of, of what's happening. The novel starts and when we first meet these characters, they're living in Seattle. Bernadette lives in Seattle with her husband Elgin and her daughter B, which is short for Balakrishna, which they <laughs> They eventually explain why this little white girl is named Balakrishna, which I did think was funny. Yeah. So they're living in Seattle. B is about to enter high school, I think, right? Is that the prep school she's going to is high school? Yeah. They live in a very interesting home, right? It's a former uh, school for girls that's on the top of this hill in Seattle. It's kind of falling apart. We meet Bernadette, who is, she's a little miserly. Is that fair to say? Yeah, she she's living a different lifestyle than she envisioned. And it's clear that there was a shift in her life that has led to this point. Right. And, and a very different lifestyle than the people around her, which is where most of the conflict comes, right? Right. She has direct conflict with her neighbor, Audrey. And she's kind of this pariah in this little community, right? The the other moms are sending nasty emails about her. Yeah. There's a conflict at school where uh, Audrey claims that Bernadette ran over her foot and right. she's totally faking it. And we totally know it, right? I think because Bernadette is so misunderstood by the people around her, it all comes to a head in this big conflict between the husband and a therapist that's been brought in that doesn't really, really, she's only heard one side of the story, right? right? And essentially what happens is Bernadette disappears. And that's where the title of the book comes from. Where'd you go, Bernadette? They're literally trying to find her. Right. (laughs) All of this is told in conjunction with a planned family trip to Antarctica that is kind of at the center of this whole narrative, right? And yeah, so they have to venture off to find mom. Right. You know, her daughter has made it her mission to gather these elements to find where she's at. And it's a... Yeah, a very modern, like all of these things that she's tracking are are like emails and text messages. And it's a a modern novel in that way, for sure. Right, because this is, I guess, where we can get into the form of it. Yes, it is an epistolary novel. Correct. Which is a term I learned because of this book. (laughs) It's a novel told in a sequence of letters or, in this case, emails, text messages, even. There's a like a hospital... uh, like reports and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, in the past, it's typically been letters. Like two of my favorites that I'm familiar with are Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis and Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. And I love both those books, but those are a little like longer form letters. So this kind of hops around and it starts off that way. And then there's, you know, in between all of that, uh, it reads a little bit like a 
a normal novel, especially when from like Beast's perspective. Right, because they're essentially journal entries that she's right. writing. So it, it feels very... Uh, it's a little more long form. Long form, very narrative. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, how did you, you know, how did you react to that or what was your experience with it? Yeah, I mean, this was the first novel of this nature that I've read. Um, I liked it for the most part, I yeah. think. Honestly, it did kind of remind me of a novel that you and I read recently, uh, There, There by Tommy Orange. Yeah. That one's not a pistol. Larry, but it is every chapter is from the perspective of a different character. Mm-hmm. Kind of what you get here, right? You get emails from one character to another, and then it jumps to somebody else's perspective, right? Right, and so um, I enjoyed it. I thought yeah. that was a fun way to to read it, a, a fun way to get to know all of these different characters. Even though I think some of these characters are kind of cardboard cutouts of people, right? I, that's where I think it struggles a little bit. Is where you have these characters being introduced to where you get a you get an idea or a feel or insight into their actions, but there's no, there's not a lot of descriptive language here. And there's not, because of the way it jumps between people, I think I missed the in-between parts. Like I, I missed digging into character motivations and I think it's a little harder to connect, you know, with Bernadette through just her emails to her personal assistant or whatever, though I think it's funny and it, it's an interesting way to to tell this story I personally found it harder. I know it kind of jumped in right there with a criticism. Let's talk about some of the things we liked first. Yeah. Yeah. So I think some, yeah. So I think some of the strongest elements are the humor of this book. While I'm on the same page, I think you are as I'm not sure all of it is for me. Like I, I recognize that it's there and I, you know, it's just some of those situations are outrageous and this is a satirical comedy. So, you know, they're supposed to be, I think Maria simple is a concise writer. And I think she has, you can tell she's met, people like these characters before in some shape or form. So like she understands this world of the, you know, of Seattle and Microsoft and these things. Right. And she pulls the humor out of some of the kind of ridiculous things that only the 1% experience or whatever. I think another strong element of this is just the unique style and structure. I think she finds a way to work it out, even though part of my quibbles. I love the word quibbles. Keep going. Part of my uh, quibbles with this are just not being able to fully immerse ourselves in this world and or stay long enough in one place to connect to the characters. Because it kind of jumps from character to character in perspective? Yeah, and I don't even know if it's... I think it's just how often it jumps and how different the jumps are in form. Like there's... Take, for instance, Cavalier and Clay, where we're set up with this really... From the beginning, you're in a world that's very descriptive, like Shaban does a really good job at telling you who these two characters are from the very beginning, uh, the way they look, all of those things. And here, you're not getting any of that. And right. it's obviously style choice, but for me, it just doesn't work as well. It never like completely took me out. I just never felt like I was really ever fully in, Yeah, if that makes sense. I kind of felt like I was just reading a story go by. Hmm, interesting. Um, not that I wasn't entertained by it because I was, but I don't I don't think it uh, had any sort of real effect on me. Gotcha. I really liked the character of Bernadette Fox. Okay. I thought she was funny, she was caring, and really misunderstood, which made her relatable. Right. Right? I think she's very relatable. Her backstory is tragic, heartbreaking, but also really exciting, right? So the backstory on her is, so 10 or 15 years before the events of this novel... She was an architect coming out of school and kind of rocked the world of architecture with a couple of projects that were 
kind of innovative innovative and remarkable mm-hmm. especially for their time right one involved renovating like a bifocal glasses warehouse into a residence in a very unique and interesting way mm-hmm. and then the other one was what they called the 20 mile house it was a project that sourced all of its materials from a 20 mile radius of the building site and a i think that's a really cool idea yeah it's a cool concept the way it all kind of gets ripped away from her and what essentially causes them to move to seattle and start their life there and i found it really compelling she's the most fun to read of all of the first person accounts i think With Bernadette's early work in her architecture career, she made huge waves in the industry and then completely fell off the map and disappeared. Nobody even really knew where she went. She even ended up winning a MacArthur Genius Grant Mm -hmm. for the 20 Mile House Project. I thought that was like a nice wrinkle to the backstory. And it got me thinking, it made me actually do some research on kind of the history of architecture. So I just wanted to give you some of the things that I learned. School me, boy. Okay, so... To me, there are two things interesting kind of about the backstory of Bernadette. Number one is the idea of the MacArthur Genius Grant given to someone who then basically disappears. Mm -hmm. And number two is the actual project of the 20-mile house. I just thought that was a really cool idea, and I wanted to see if there was any real-life precedent or similar projects like that out there. So the MacArthur Genius Grant has been awarded to six architects. The first was actually in 1981, but through the years, it was given to a mix of architects, engineers, and historians. Um, Six people total, including that first one. So the one from 2000 is the one that I thought was interesting and slightly relatable to this. So he was perhaps the closest to Bernadette, although he was in his 50s when he won the award. So Bernadette is like in pretty young, mid twenties. Yeah. But this guy's name is Samuel Mockby. The MacArthur Foundation referred to him as an architect who erased the boundary between experimental design and social consciousness. So in 1993, Mockby co-founded Auburn University's Rural Studio. Rural, rural—that's a tough word to say on the it's microphone. Tough man, <laughs> real tough. So the studio was a program that combined the teaching of architecture with a commitment to public service. And so each year, this guy, he brought students to Hale County, Alabama, which is one of the poorest regions in the United States with more than 1,400 substandard dwellings. Under Mockby's direction, using discarded objects such as tires, scrap wood, and glass bottles as structural materials, the students consulted with local residents to produce architecture that challenges all convention in terms of methods, materials, and forms, and is both functional and beautiful. Wow, yeah, that's cool. So that's really, I mean, it's not taking materials from a very specific radius, but it yeah. is, I think this guy was kind of a pioneer in the uh, vein of using materials, unusual materials in an unusual way. Another interesting similarity between these two, sadly, Samuel Mockby passed away a year after receiving the MacArthur Grant. Okay, wow. So Bernadette, obviously still living, disappears. This guy passes away it was a couple years after the major projects that won him the award but the idea of receiving this award and then not ever really producing any other real work again yeah 
I don't think Semple based anything right. about Bernadette it's off of this guy. I just thought it was an interesting. Person, yeah. yeah. And then I do want to talk about the other half of what I think is interesting about the backstory, which is the 20 Mile House project, right? So I wasn't able to find anything specifically like the project in terms of sourcing materials from like a certain radius of the build site. But there are several examples of sustainable residential architecture using unusual materials. Many instances were in the realm of disaster relief, actually. So there's a Japanese architect named Shigeru Ban, who is famous for, among other things, using paper tubing to build sustainable housing for the UN in response to millions of Rwandans fleeing Tanzania and Zaire in 1995. And then again, after a big earthquake in Japan, and then again, after wow. a big earthquake in Nepal in 2015, he took this um, paper tubing that they would wrap around like concrete columns and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's like a very giant version of like a toilet paper roll. And he made walls out of it and built houses with it. And uh, that's basically what this guy's famous for, specifically in the realm of disaster relief. And so those were some of the the specific projects that I could find that were in the realm of creating sustainable residential architecture. There are some other examples related to like hurricane relief in the U.S. Brad Pitt was actually involved in a big project for relief housing in New Orleans, but apparently those houses are starting to fall apart. So there's a big legal battle going on right now. (laughs) But yeah, the most similarities I could find to sustainable uh, residential stuff like the project in this movie or in this book and movie uh, were for like disaster relief and stuff. I just thought it was interesting. Yeah, no, that's that's super interesting. Well, what's funny is I thought, I mean, I kind of wish they dug a little bit more into the architecture part of this. And I really liked what Semple introduced on the architecture side. I would have loved to dig a little bit more into those projects And then also, I think one of the strongest parts of this novel was the people in her field talking about Bernadette. I did appreciate one of the messages of this story is what can happen when someone's creativity is stifled and where that energy goes, right? Right. I did really appreciate that and found that play out in a compelling way. I found it a little harder, just based on the structure of this book, she leaves the picture and you are left with B, who I think is a fine character. But I think she kind of starts off sounding a little younger than her age. And then at points, she sounds a little like towards the end, maybe a little older than older her age. Older and wiser. And it was yeah. like kind of a, it didn't seem like this wasn't like over four years time or anything. Well, how'd you feel about the uh, secondary characters here with Audrey and Sulin? I feel like most of the side characters are not as well-developed, obviously, as Bernadette, because she's your your hero. Sue Lin annoyed me. <laughs> of course, yeah. I, and how about Elgin? I absolutely hate Elgin. My biggest issue with this whole book is Elgin, her husband. Or what's your issue? Is it from, is it of the character or of the formation of the character or it's specifically his actions i don't necessarily love the way he was utilized or written specifically like he spends the whole book essentially talking about his crazy wife and claiming he just wants the best for her and be right but never once asks hey how you doing never has a conversation i know there's once or twice where he kind of tries to talk to bernadette in a restaurant in public, but it's always from a aggressive pointing fingers kind of way. Yeah. And his actions based on this notion that my wife is crazy, I need to get her help, but then 
he does it in the most selfish, unempathetic way possible. That's what sets the whole story in motion of Bernadette disappearing and and whatnot. And I think it's kind of a weakness of the book that the whole narrative, in my eyes, doesn't happen if the characters just stop and say, hey, what's going on with you? And I get that's probably true about a lot, uh, of, a lot of story, but for a character who's caring so much about his family and he just wants his family to be a unit, then ask a fucking question, dude. Like, it just, it just seemed really thin that the guy would never say, would never try to be empathetic at all. Because I don't think he is. I think he's aggressive and accusatory. She's trying to sell us on the idea that this guy is both a good dad and a good husband, but also the person that selfishly kind of sets this emotion. I don't know if I necessarily agree that she's trying to sell him as that, but I do feel like in order for the second half of the book to work, that we'd have to have a little bit different relationship with him in the first half. And I just didn't really care for him all the way through. So I didn't, you know, some of the moments that would hit between him and B later on in the novel just don't do much for me because I have this sense of of him being a pretty one-dimensional, selfish character who obviously does some shitty things with little consequence. And, right. And it's just weird. Yeah, man. Like, maybe we don't spoil it, but like, by the end, he's really crossed some lines and yeah. it just seems like they're going to go back to being a happy family is the, right. the insinuation. With, without you seeing his, any sort of transformation in him, right? Right. That's, I think that's the big thing, yeah. That's huge. You nailed it in that he... Sets the the whole plot in motion by kind of aggressively, essentially attacking his wife with a poorly planned, ill-advised intervention. Intervention, yeah, with a doctor that has never once spoken to the quote-unquote patient. Right, huge red flag with that already. Right, but that's another. I mean, that's kind of another example of what I was talking about because that whole intervention situation. You know, there's like comedic elements to it. It's supposed to be pretty satirical, but then it leads to something that you're supposed to care about. I don't know. It just it felt like a conflict of tone or of... Uh, yeah. That I just was a little bit confused on how I'm supposed to feel about the situation and these characters. Like, And it gets a little more sentimental towards the end, which seems to clash a little bit with that, I don't know, satirical element of the story. But There were several more things I did like about the book. The actual writing, word choice, and poetry of it in places is really nice. There's a passage towards the end that I'd like to read. It doesn't really spoil anything. There's no plot points to it. It's just, I think, really pretty writing and really well done. I'll miss the afternoons when I'd go out on our lawn and throw my head back. The sky in Seattle is low. It felt like God had lowered a silk parachute over us. Everything I ever knew was up in that sky. Twinkling joyous sunlight, airy giggling cloud wisps, blinding columns of sun, Orbs of gold, pink, flesh, utterly cheesy in their luminosity. Gigantic puffy clouds welcoming, forgiving, repeating infinitely across the horizon, as if between mirrors and slices of rain, pounding wet misery in the distance now, but soon on us and in another part of the sky, a black stain, rainless. I like that too. And I remember, I remember feeling the same way about that passage. And I wish there was more of that kind of stuff throughout. And it's just hard. You, someone doesn't just say that to their friend. And that's, that, <laughs> Got it. You know what I mean? That, that's what I have a harder time. Like that's kind of what I read literature for. And the whole thing doesn't have to be like that. I think personally, I would feel more connected if that style of writing was kind of scattered through the whole book. But I feel like just because of the format that 
you know, it wouldn't make sense if it was, whether it's from like a, an email or just something that's a little abstract from the beginning. I think works better when the story has some sort of mystery or it's kind of cryptic instead of, I don't ever feel like this is supposed to be like that. No. So I don't know if the format actually supports the story. The tone if, and subject matter. And yeah, story. yeah. Yeah. I, um, I buy that. Another thing I liked, and I have another passage to read. I think that simple describes discomfort really well. Yeah. In several instances throughout the book, she uses some really good imagery. And I've got a passage here that I will read. I was lying there on the bed, seeing the backstage of time, how slowly it went, everything it's made up of, which is nothing. The walls were dark blue carpet on the bottom, then a metal strip, then shiny wood, and then beige plastic to the ceiling. And I thought, what horrible colors. They might kill me. I have to close my eyes. <laughs> but then the effort of that seemed impossible. So like the ballet stage manager, I pulled one rope in my brain, then the other, then five more, which closed my eyelids. My mouth hung open, but no words came out. Just a crackly moan. If there were words to it, what they would say was, anything but this. All that to describe feeling sick. I thought it was really good. Yeah. Before we move on to the movie, let me ask you one last question. Yeah. A required question on this <laughs> podcast. Did you get happy tears at any point reading the book? I'm sad to say that I did not. Ah, bummer. I know. I wanted to. Go ahead with yours. I don't know if you'd call them happy tears, but like we mentioned earlier, if we're if we're putting them on a scale, mm -hmm. you know right before tears come, you get that kind of oh, weird yeah. feeling in the back of your eyes, mm -hmm. like right before your eyes start to kind of glaze over and, and well with tears. I got to that part. So it was like a pre-tear. Mm -hmm. It was literally the last lines of the novel. And I'm going to read them because I don't think they're too terribly spoilery or anything. It's just the way she signs off her final letter. And it just says, say yes and no, I'm always mom. Even now, I just got it. That feeling. It it's like my <laughs> eyes aren't really welling up with tears, but you get that kind of weird feeling in the back of your eyes yeah. right before it's going to happen. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> oh, yeah. I've been there. Been there many a time. <laughs> <laughs> Very familiar. So that was the uh, closest I got to happy tears during the reading of the novel, Where'd You Go, Bernadette by Maria Semple. People like you must create. If you don't, you become a menace to society. You'll never guess what happened. She disappeared. Bernadette jumped out a window. There's one answer to all of your problems. Get your ass back to work. So let's move on to the film. The adaptation directed by Richard Linklater. Our boy, we love this guy. Did you love the movie? Oh man, I wish I did. Oh. No. I hate this. I want, I mean, I don't know if I'm begging for happy tears, <laughs> but I'm encouraging them, you know? I'm always begging for them. We can start from the very beginning if we want. We've done the groundwork here, you know, what the film is about and it follows the story. There's a couple key things that make you feel a little bit differently about some characters maybe, but for the most part, it's pretty faithful. What were your expectations going in, knowing it's Linklater? I thought he would take this material and I felt like he would take it and add some flow to it, I guess, because his movies have like the before trilogy flows so flawlessly and and plenty of his other films that are different, like Bernie or something, I still think have a, a really great storyline and are executed really well. So I know that the, the range of his films and you have like Days of Confused and all these things. So why not have faith in the guy? Sure. And you got to think it's a New York Times bestselling novel. 
Yep. It's Richard Linklater and it's a all-star cast. Yeah, it's great. On paper, right? Like it should work. Right. Like I'm wondering why he chose this material because it doesn't necessarily seem like something that he would adapt or whatever. Right. But going into this, the first scene is fine. It's an interesting choice. You start off with Bernadette's character already elsewhere. Right. And it's I think it's a really beautiful shot. The, the landscape's nice. The cinematography is very striking right at the beginning. Right away. And it's the settings doing all most of that work anyway for exactly. you. Exactly. But, but I still it's think beautiful. it's a nice shot. It's a bird's eye looking down. You're looking at the surface of the ocean and from the bottom of the frame in creep these bright orange and yellow kayaks and on the right hand of the screen is a cluster of about five or six and then a little bit off to their left <laughs> there's one that's kind of banking off on its own path yeah thus we meet bernadette right uh and it's a cool entry that's not like that in the book 30 seconds in i'm feeling it sure and then it goes to this kitchen scene between three main characters here, Elgin, Branch, the father, Bernadette, and then B, the daughter. And it threw me off from the get-go. It's the editing and the dialogue. It's like really fast paced. It just seems so stilted. It was like, and I think the editing had a lot to do with it too. It didn't just like settle in the kitchen between these characters. It's just back and forth quickly. And it doesn't seem like a natural space for anyone. I don't know. It's kind of strange. Right. It feels very rushed. Completely different in style from what I'm used to from them too. I mean, I would almost retitle this 90 minutes of exposition. Like, yeah. it's just like, there's so much that you need to learn about all these characters and their backstories that like every line of dialogue just seems to be working so hard to tell the audience this. Right. Even up until they finally do all meet up in Antarctica, it still feels like they're giving me exposition <laughs> in the final minutes of the movie almost. It's just constant. And it is such a talky movie, right? Mm -hmm. It's so dialogue heavy. And like you said, it's kind of constant. It just feels unrelenting. Yeah. As Brandon pulls out his notes written on Alamo order card. Yeah. Shout out Alamo draft house. They're going to love us over there. Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> did you order anything? Yes or no? You ordered the water. I drank the water. I did too. At the end. Because <laughs> if you drink it during, you're going to have to pee during the movie. Exactly. So you order the water, then you chug it at the end. It's a great practice. Yeah, there's several characters. I think Kate Blanchett is a good casting for Bernadette. I still think Audrey's character was played really well by Kristen Wiig. Like, I think she did a really, she was definitely one of my favorite characters. It, it did feel like a bunch of just events and situations thrown on screen, just thrown at you back to back. And there was no, there was no sense of space in this movie, really. And then some kind of weird shots at the end when they were, you know, supposed to be pretty dramatic between B and her father just didn't do it for me. And it's pretty unlike Linklater again, like we're, we're big fanboys. And yeah, I do think Elgin's character is better in the film than the book. They definitely take out of some of those they make. huge transgressions <laughs> right. that are in the book. Yeah. But besides that, there, it was tough to really care for a lot of these people. Is the format of the book what makes the movie feel this way, right? This feeling of uh, being kind of stilted or disjointed or never really having a flow. We've you know talked about this book being epistolary and having just kind of these short emails and stuff back and forth. The movie can kind of feel that way. In movie format, it doesn't really work particularly for this story. Like you said, you just get a bunch of exposition and some of these scenes fall flat. Certain things that were adapted from the book were brought into the movie and kind of go nowhere and are there 
just because they were in the book and don't add anything to the right. movie. So I do I, wish he veered some um, and kind of just added his own flair to this because it, you know, it doesn't build upon the book really. Totally. The character of Su Lin, which is a huge part of the book, mm-hmm. you cut her out of that movie, it's the same movie. Yeah. Right? Even the FBI plot line is just kind of a quick punchline in the in the movie that's kind of out of left field it's, and not important at all. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Did you see, there's a movie that came out last year, the title's Searching. Did you see that? I did not. Okay, so the main character in this movie is trying to find his daughter through all these like missing pieces, similar to what B's doing here. But the structure of the movie is definitely geared around, I mean, it's called Searching. He's finding these like, Facebook messages and all of these things that his daughter has done to figure out where where she is. But it works really well, I think, in the film format. All that's to say, I know this sort of style can be done in an interesting way. And I mean, the film doesn't really do that like the book does. Is it that sense of mystery? Because that's one thing that definitely didn't get pulled from the book to the movie was you see at the very beginning where Bernadette is in the movie. Yeah. And in the book... They never reveal exactly where she is. So there is still this sense of mystery all yeah. the way up until the end. You don't have that in the, in the movie. <clears throat> is it fair to say that it just doesn't add enough gravity to the actual situation and it's used as more punchline and characterization? I think so, yeah. I see. Probably, I haven't seen all of Linklater's movies, but way towards the bottom. In, definitely at the bottom of the list from the ones that I have seen. Same. It's a bummer. And I think I've seen them all. I think some of the performances are good, given what they were trying to work with. Kate Blanchett is just great in everything, probably. Right. So, like, I really like her, so. But I've seen her in other things that I find her a lot more compelling, and it's just the way that as well was written for her. Right. And here, I just didn't have the ability to feel the impact of her character because of the writing, I think. Here's a positive. I did really appreciate the relationship between Bernadette and B in the movie. It was as strong or stronger in the movie than in the book, I mm-hmm. think. They just seem like best friends. It's the only time in the movie, I think, that the character relationships ever really work for me. It's when those two are in a room together or in the car together. Yeah. They are just buds, right? And and I think that's one thing that the movie did really well was establish their relationship. Although I think when they took the mystery out of where mom went, it was less compelling to get to the end. And it kind of shifted into this dad-daughter narrative, which... I buy as a premise. Exactly. I just don't necessarily love the execution. I think I'm there with you. It's, it was funny seeing uh, Lawrence Fishburne in the movie, but I think he did fine. Yeah. With the small- The limited time he had. Yeah. I, you know, I love me some Morpheus, man. Even thinking back on the film, because it just feels like a bunch of pictures. <laughs> it was kind of a blur, right? Yeah. It just rushed by, but also seemed a little too long. <laughs> yeah. Any happy tears for you, Nick? Surprise. Yes, there was. Oh, wow. Despite not liking the movie overall, mm-hmm. I did have happy tears at one point. Mm-hmm. Unexpectedly, didn't see it coming. And it was that scene between Lawrence Fishburne and Kate Blanchett. Okay. So it's a scene where they're sitting at a, at a coffee shop. They're old colleagues that are meeting up for the first time in like 10 years or longer. Yeah. This is something we didn't even talk about, which I think might be kind of a big omission, was talking about Kate Blanchett's history with miscarriages right. before having her daughter be. Um, and in the movie, this scene is where she's revealing all that to us. Um, and so when you go into the character of Bernadette being very depressed and in this terrible place in life, that is a, a huge backstory piece 
to understand kind of why she is at where she's at, right? In the scene, she's telling the story about her daughter who Lawrence Fishburne's character doesn't know because they haven't seen each other in years. And when she starts talking about B and who the person her daughter is now, she's like starts gushing about how smart and wonderful her daughter is. And it was just all in Kate Blanchett's performance when she, she kind of starts getting glossy eyes and you can tell she's just so proud of her daughter. And yeah. I don't know what it was that overcame me, but it was beautiful. Yeah, I think I wasn't all the way there with with you, but I think that scene definitely made sense to me, whereas many others don't. So just speaks to what a sensitive sad boy I am <laughs> that even a movie I don't like makes me cry some real happy tears. Yeah, I will say that one thing I did appreciate about this uh, film was the the ending sequence I thought was pretty cool and creative and was in line with the spirit of Bernadette's creativity. Are you talking about specifically- Like the credit sequence. The credit sequence. Yeah. Uh, so what that was, was actual construction footage of the Haley 6 British Antarctic Research Station that was completed in 2013. Very cool. So what Linklater did was went and got footage from a couple of years ago yeah, and weaved them into the events of the story in what I thought was a cool way, for sure. It's hard because it doesn't contribute too much to the story, but... Right. It's maybe, maybe a coda at the end yeah. or, or epilogue. Wasn't groundbreaking by any means. Right, right. So Where'd You Go, Bernadette? The novel by Maria Semple is on bookshelves anywhere that you look. It was a New York Times bestseller, so it's not going to be hard to find. And then the feature film is in wide release in theaters now. I think we both would say we like the book more than the film, and we would encourage people to read it if it seems up their alley. I think the book's a fun, easy read. I, I would recommend Definitely better than the movie. I'm not going to recommend the movie, even though I do love me some Richard Lane. I recommend everything else he's done. <laughs> Before we do our final wrap up, I'm going to try this out. Yeah. I'm just going to ask you one last question. It has nothing to do with directly with the things right. we talked about today. What is your favorite book that has been adapted to a film? Or what's your favorite instance of a book being adapted to a film? I don't know if I have a, a favorite that comes to mind, but I have two films that I think, I mean, they're huge and they both do this very well, but differently. So There Will Be Blood being the first one. It's a pretty loose adaptation. You take some source material and you work some magic from, from PTA and amazing performances and it's a really special movie. And then No Country for, for Old Men is a much more direct adaptation. I haven't read the book that PTA adapted, which was, uh, I believe, Oil by Upton Sinclair. But I have read No Country for Old Men and seen the movie, and I think they're both fantastic. And those came out the same year, which is crazy. Yeah, they were um, theaters at the same time. Wild. So I guess I halfway answered your question because I didn't actually read Oil. No, that's so, perfectly valid. I never gave any uh, criteria. You could have said anything you wanted. <laughs> yeah, at, at least I think those are two two amazing ones. Yeah, there's no rules to one last question. Yeah. The segment we're calling one last question. <laughs> Another PTA adaptation that I love is Inherent Vice. I don't know, it was a polarizing film because plenty of people saw it, didn't really understand it, but it comes from a really wacky book that I think PTA adapts brilliantly and Joaquin Phoenix is amazing in it. I didn't see it, and I didn't understand it. <laughs> meant to. You meant to, but didn't. you didn't understand but it. But if it's Paul Thomas Anderson, I didn't understand it. <laughs> What's yours? Harry Potter? 
Yeah, uh, no, not Harry Potter, but oh, Lord of the Rings but, too. Uh, well, that's mine. So damn is as honestly, I haven't read all three of them all the way through. So I, I'll let you have this. <laughs> Thanks, man. As basic as it feels to give this answer, right? I was 13 years old when I went and visited family who lived on the other side of the country, and my cousins told me, "Hey, this movie is coming out called The Fellowship of the Ring. You need to read these books." Yeah, and I went home. I was a big reader when I was young, and I. Haven't read a lot since, but I read all three Lord of the Rings books. I've always loved the fantasy genre. Right. Was so captivated by these books and that movie. When you're 13 years old, it's like it's like the perfect time. For, oh, it was yeah. the perfect time for me to see that movie, and it's just so beautifully done. I'm still scared of a ring wraith coming into my hotel room and plunging the sword into my <laughs> bed it still scares me that's incredible and the um the scene where you see the first ring wraith and there's that dolly zoom oh, shot and then they hide under that root and the bugs all start crawling all over the four hobbits it's just the most captivating terrifying thing and i just oh they're they're all three very good. I would yeah, I would say the same. And I have a really cool relationship with the books. One, I've, I've read The Hobbit and I love it. And it's, you know, an easy read. As far as the trilogy goes, when I was younger, I had a, a really good friend that lived down the street and his family would uh, read together a lot. So they did these books together and I was over at their house a lot. So there was just kind of a sitting in the living room on the couch with their whole family and their parents reading these. So I haven't read all three of them all the way through or anything. But I have those, you know, particular scenes and memories from that, which was really cool. And then obviously seeing some of those on, on screen was spectacular. Did you come out of the movies ever thinking like there was parts that they didn't uh, do justice to, or is it kind of- um... The Lord of the Rings movies? Yeah, yeah. No, man, I think I just loved them from beginning to end. You know, the classic thing that everyone says is Return of the King has like five endings and I get it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it kind of drags at the end, maybe. And sure, I buy it, but I still love those movies so much. So, boys and girls, listeners all, we want to hear from you. What is your favorite film that's been adapted from a novel? You guys can hit us on our social. Currently, we're just on Instagram, at Happy Tears Podcast. Or you can go to our website. There's a link on our homepage that if you click it, you can leave us a voicemail. We want to hear from you. So tell us what is your favorite film adapted from a novel. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to Happy Tears. Happy Tears is produced by Nick Melita and Brandon Henry. You can find more info as well as today's episode's show notes at happytearspod.com. Follow us on Instagram at Happy Tears Podcast. Nick is at Melitagram and Brandon is at Mr. Brandon Henry. And guys, girls, people, we want to hear from you. The current thing we're asking is what is your favorite movie adapted from a book? You can comment on our Instagram. There's a form on our website as well as the link to leave us a voicemail. In addition to that, we just want to hear from you guys. What do you think we should cover on the podcast? What gives you happy tears? Tell us about your favorite movie, your favorite book, the best album of all time. Tell us about the movie last week that brought you to happy tears. We want to hear everything. So when you guys have happy tears, we want to hear about it. And the new Happy Tears Spotify playlist is now live. I believe it's called 
Happy Tears mixtape on Spotify. It is just under Brandon's personal account, Brandon Henry. And there will also be a link to that on the homepage of our website, happytearspod.com. The original theme music for Happy Tears is by Homage, youtube.com slash homagebeats. On the next episode, we will be discussing writer-director Lulu Wong's new film, The Farewell, as well as They're There, a novel by Tommy Orange. And we didn't record our normal outro, so on behalf of Brandon and from myself, I'm Nick. Farewell!